Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, May 16th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. Today we're going to present the Book of Esther, Fraud or Fable. Okay, the title is sarcastic. Tonight will be part one. I decided on that about 3 p.m. this afternoon when I looked at how much material I had and how much I wanted to present, and I wasn't even halfway there, and I was still typing until about 30 minutes ago. So this would be a two-part series, and I've um, chosen, rather than write my own critique on the internal aspects of the Book of Esther to present Bertrand Comparé's critique with a lot of my own historical material and things similar to that and my own comments and do it over two weeks instead of only one. Because to do this in one week, I would have really been rushing it with what I have tonight on my own. So this is the Book of Esther, Fraud or Fable, because there's no fact to it at all. And I can hear it now. I can hear them say now, oh no, first he was attacking um, other so-called pastors, then he's attacking this, then he's attacking that. Now he's attacking the Bible. But whose Bible is that anyway? And what is the Bible? The books which we call the Bible were compiled into a single volume by men. Men made that limitation, not God. And originally, back in the Council of Nicaea, and before and after that, many of those men argued at great length over what should be in the canon. Canon, of course, comes from a Greek word, which means a rule or a standard, different from the type of canon that you shoot. Of the 66 books in the King James Bible, and, and of course, they're not all books, right? But we'll call them books for our purposes here. I don't know if I would call um, 10 verses in one of John's epistles a book, but we'll call them books. Of the 66 books in the King James Version of the Bible, 65 of them certainly do belong there. They're not the only books that belong there, but those 65 belong. However, the original King James Version of the Bible contained 80 books. The 1611, yes, it did. It contained 80 books for over 150 years, probably. The Geneva Bibles, which were published in the 16th century before the King James, and which were the Bibles of the first American Protestants, those Bibles also contained 80 books. Someone before us must have attacked the Bible 14 times because 14 books are already missing. 
That's a joke, right? Those 14 books are sometimes published separately and are called the Apocrypha. Reportedly, Martin Luther and the Luther Bible, from my feeble memory, he was the first to have published a Bible with these 14 books placed under that special designation of Apocrypha. And the King James and, and the Geneva Bibles followed his lead. The typical Catholic Bibles have 72 books rather than 66 because they retain six books from the Apocrypha as well as the 66 found in the King James Version. I know they retain one and two Maccabees, Judith, and Tobit. I'm not sure of the, um, the other two. It may be the two wisdom books, Wisdom of Solomon and Wisdom of Sirach. I'm not really sure. It's, I've read it. I read a Catholic Bible or at least perused it at great length, probably about 15 years ago or more. But there are other ancient scriptures which exist, which are not in the Bible, and which were quoted by the apostles as scripture, yet they are not even found in the Apocrypha. And I'm only going to give one clear example of this. There are others. But the clearest example is in Jude 14. It's in Jude 14. That's the clearest example because the apostle actually says that he's quoting somebody from ancient times. Where the apostle quotes Enoch. And the famous passage is found in Jude 14 and 15. And Enoch, seventh from Adam, prophesied to these sayings. So Jude must have been looking at a writing or remembering a writing that he knew was attributed to the patriarch Enoch, who lived way before the flood. He must have been citing something he knew from some scripture somewhere that we don't have today. Enoch prophesied to thee, saying, Behold, the princes come with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment against all and to convict every soul for all of their impious deeds which they committed impiously and for all of the harsh things which the impious wrongdoers have spoken against him. But no, no such prophecy from Enoch that reads anything like that is found in the Old Testament as we have it today. So there are indeed books which the, which the apostles themselves esteemed as holy scripture, which never made it into our Bibles at all. Brenton Septuagint contains the 39 Old Testament books familiar from the King James Version. And then it has 15 apocryphal books. Now, Brenton would have had 16 rather than the King James Apocrypha, which has 14. But Brenton placed the infamous writing commonly called the Additions to Esther at the end of the canonical Esther, which is the way that the Greek manuscripts also have it. 
because those additions to Esther are not found in any Hebrew writing, the King James and the Geneva Bible Apocrypha have the Greek additions to Esther as a separate book. So it's the 14th book. I'm not sure of the exact order, but it's in the 14 books of the Apocrypha. If they had had that at the end of the canonical Esther, they would only have 13 books in their Apocrypha, where Brenton has 15. And that leads to another question, which is why are there additions to Esther in the first place? Why do we have this separate little book? Or from another perspective, which is the proper perspective, why is the Greek version of Esther in the Septuagint 10 verses longer than the Hebrew version found in the Masoretic text? Because those 10 verses are the apocryphal book called the Additions to Esther. And that question... And the answer to that question is also the first reason why the book of Esther must be called into question. The book does not make one mention of Yahweh. It does not even contain one instance of the Hebrew word for God, the title God, which in Hebrew is either El or Elohim. We don't find those words at all, El, Elohim, or Curios in reference to Yahweh, or the Tetragrammaton, Yad, Hey, Thou, Hey, Y-H-V-H, which is Yahweh in Hebrew. None of those things are in the book of Esther. Neither does the Greek version contain any mention of God until what was evidently a later hand, added the 10 verses in Greek, but never in Hebrew, which we have as the additions to Esther, which are found in the King James Apocrypha. But those verses do not exist in any Hebrew copy of the manuscripts, or perhaps we should say in any Jewish or even Yiddish copies of the manuscripts. The book of Esther was apparently accepted by at least some men in early times. There's no doubt. For instance, it is found in our modern copies of Josephus's Antiquities of the Judeans. However, all mentions of Esther in the writing of Josephus are only found where the story of Esther is provided in a copy which Josephus himself had apparently paraphrased into Greek. Now, the verses known as the additions to Esther mentioning God are missing from the Greek copy in Josephus. But, and this is a big but, the paraphrase of the story found in Book 11 of Josephus's Antiquities mentions God several times, probably a dozen times, where God is not mentioned at all in the surviving Hebrew copies of the book. And it is evident 
And Joseph was indeed a pious man, even though he had wrong ideas about a lot of things, like Nicodemus did. He was one of the first century Pharisees. He was a pious man. And it is evident that Josephus himself must have added the references to God into the book of Esther. If indeed, and this is important to conceptualize, if indeed Josephus himself wrote that portion of his book, because many additions were made to many portions of many ancient books, and the Christian must be discerning. Another early place where we find mention of Esther is in the so-called, and I'm going to call it so-called because I think it's just about as valid as the book of Esther is. I think it's just bullshit, to be honest. Another place we find mention of Esther is in the so-called Epistle of Clement of Rome to the Corinthians, which is supposedly from the late 1st century A.D. However, that epistle is known in Greek copies only as early as the Codex Alexandrinus, which means the 5th century A.D. And its authenticity has been disputed since at least the 9th century A.D., notably by Photius, P-H-O-T-I-U-S. Photius was the patriarch of Constantinople in the 9th century. He, o- he also wrote a scholia. An earlier Latin copy is said to exist, and I tried to see a copy of it, but the text for us is sadly and presently unattainable. However, we doubt the authenticity, authenticity of the epistle of Clement to the Corinthians as it stands. Because among other things, disagreeable to Scripture, the epistle of Clement claims that Esther was to be credited, quote-unquote, for the delivery of the 12 tribes of Israel in danger of being destroyed. Now, anyone who understands Judaism would understand that that is a false claim which only the Jews would make. The book of Esther was set in Persia and only referred, even within itself, to the Judeans of the Babylonian captivity. Even Josephus understood that the tribes, which were much earlier deported by the Assyrians, were not Judeans or Jews, but were pagan barbarians. And with them, Josephus had identified the Parthians and the Alans. Paul of Tarsus and Simon Peter would have agreed. Paul of Tarsus and Peter, in chapter 2 of his first epistle, would agree that the ancient Israelites are the pagan nations of Europe 
the Old Testament prophets themselves explain that Israel became pagan. It is not proper to call nine and a half tribes Jews. Yet this so-called Epistle of Clement, who was allegedly a student of those original apostles, would say that the 12 tribes are all Jews, because Esther only uses that term Jews in reference to those people. We do not believe, Clement, we do not believe that that epistle is from Clement. Among the so-called church fathers, I really hate to use that term, but that's how they are, that's how they're known. Among the so-called church fathers, specifically the Anti-Nicene Fathers, meaning the early Christian writings from before the Council of Nicaea. The Book of Esther was apparently accepted by the second century, not Clement of Rome, that's a different Clement, by the second century Clement of Alexandria. Certain writings in the works of the third century Christian writer Origen Notice the different versions of Esther, but in other places in his writing, he accepted the story. In one of those places, Origen, who was also from Alexandria, had also confused the Jews of Esther with Israel, where he mentioned the story in his commentary on the Gospel of John. The 4th century writings of Lac. Lactantius, who was a Roman of North Africa, who converted to Christianity late in his life, also accepted the Esther story. And he thought the Persian king of the story was the famous Xerxes, and we'll get to that later on. Lactantius received his Christian education from Arnobus of Numidia, who was another Christian apologist who had some clearly Gnostic influences, and those Gnostic influences in the writings, in the surviving writings of Arnobus of Numidia are without doubt. We do not find any mention of Esther in the numerous early writings of any of the other Christian church fathers the anti-Nicene fathers, meaning those before the Council of Nicaea. The book of Esther, which seems to have been promoted by the Jews, is often said to have made its way into the canon of the still future Roman Catholic Church when Jerome, translating the Hebrew scriptures into Latin in Alexandria, included Esther in his Vulgate. Bertrand Compare, and we're going to cover his entire sermon on Esther over these next two weeks, Yahweh willing. Bertrand Compare, whose own sermon on Esther we will incorporate into this short series, made that mistake. He asserted that Esther didn't come into canon until Jerome put it into Vulgate. However, Eusebius, a hundred years before Jerome, had included Esther in the list of Old Testament books 
which he had compiled from origin, which he considered canon, and he was very influential. And certainly, he and origin had both approved of the book. So the inclusion of Esther among canonical books predates Jerome, but nevertheless, it leads back to the Judeans, or perhaps I should say, to the Jews of Alexandria. All of the early church fathers who accepted Esther as canonical had a direct connection to ancient Alexandria. The book is, however, included in the three oldest of the great uncle Greek manuscripts. We find the book of Esther in the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus. All of these are from the 4th and 5th centuries. Men are fallible. Men are prone to making compromises. Men are prone to making mistakes. But men often have political agendas as well. For these reasons and others, no decision of man, I don't care how old it is, no decision of man should be considered sacrosanct. Every decision of man must be reviewed by Christians in comparison with the word of our God to see the failure of man compared to the ideals upheld by the word of God is one aspect of true humility. We may also be fallible. I'm surely fallible. However, the book of Esther has many clear problems indicating that it does not belong. It does not belong to history, and it does not belong to Scripture. First, we shall examine a few scriptural arguments against the book. And then we shall examine its historical fitness alongside contemporary scripture, meaning scripture contemporary to Esther. Finally, and we will do most of this in our second part, finally we will discuss the internal problems with the book itself. There is not one passage from the book of Esther found in the New Testament or any late biblical book of the Old Testament or the Apocrypha. The apostles never quote or allude to anything from Esther in any of their writings. The events of the book of Esther are not found in any other historical source. They are not supported by any inscriptions. Nor are they found in any of the later biblical literature, which includes Nehemiah, Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all of those are from the Second Temple period. 
Both Nehemiah and Ezra had intimate dealings with the Persian kings, notably Cyrus and Artaxerxes, as well as Candesus. And neither of them make any mention or allusion to anything from the Esther story. The prophet Daniel was also acquainted with the Persian king Cyrus. The Persian kings were held in high esteem by all of these prophets. History also shows that these prophets, Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, were shown to be in high esteem by the Persian kings. There is nothing of Esther found in the four books of the Maccabees, the wisdom of Sirach, or in any other late biblical writing. Not one whit. And we're going to show some of the historical impact of that later on this evening. Out of out of all of the books of the Old Testament. The book of Esther is the only one which is completely missing in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, that's um, a very finite statement. I will admit that Nehemiah was not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but in ancient Judea, Nehemiah and Ezra were always written as part of the same scroll. And Ezra was found, but portions of the scrolls upon which Ezra was found simply didn't contain Nehemiah. But Nehemiah can be esteemed to have been among the scrolls of the Dead Sea sect because Ezra was found. And the same thing can be said for one chronicles. No copy of one chronicles survived in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but in ancient Judea, and this is shown from other archaeology, one chronicles was often included on the same scroll as two chronicles. And copies of two chronicles were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it can be assumed without any resistance that 1 Chronicles was also a part of the canon at Qumran. So those aren't um, as evidently missing as Esther was, which should have been included on its own scroll. But that's not all. Some claim that the lack of Esther amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls is simply by fate or fortune, that they simply did not survive. Now, that may be possible, but it's not, because there had been extensive calendrical materials, meaning um, writings related to the calendar year and the festivals which were unearthed 
with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many scrolls describing the calendar and, and feasts, and none of the calendars used by the Qumran sect Not one marked the Feast of Purim, which the book of Esther initiates. Therefore, since the Qumran sect did not observe the Feast of Purim, it is therefore absolutely likely that the Qumran sect did not have Esther in their canon. There are, however, some Dead Sea Scrolls which evidently record some interactions between men of the captivity of Judah and a Persian king who is called in those scrolls by the title Darius. Now, these scrolls are designated as 4Q, meaning they were found in cave 4 at Qumran, 4Q550. And 4Q550 is, um, consists of several fragments. I think it's 5, A, B, C, D, and E. And with great chutzpah, many Dead Sea Scroll publications alternately call them 4Q Proto-Esther. In fact, one publication of the Dead Sea Scrolls by Michael Wise, Martin Abbeg Jr., and Edward Cook called the Dead Sea Scrolls a new translation Comparing the account, which is evident in the fragments of 4Q550 with the Book of Esther, claims that it takes place, like Esther, in the Persian court, and the king whose court provides this setting is also Xerxes. So we see that these three supposed scholars, PhDs, whatever the hell they think they got, Michael Wise, Martin Abag Jr., and Edward Cook, take it for granted that the, the Book of Esther took place in the, per, in the rule of the Persian king Xerxes. And when we, when we are done here, this evening, we shall see just how foolish a statement that is, because Xerxes could never have been the king of the book of Esther. Reading the translations of the fragments of 4Q550, however, they have absolutely no similarity to anything in the book of Esther. Now, unlike Esther, these scrolls do not use Ahasuerus as a title for the king, but they instead use the word Darius as it was transliterated into Hebrew characters. As it also appeared in the book of Daniel, 
where Darius appears in Daniel, it's a transliteration. It's a Persian name written in Hebrew characters. D-R, Dalith, Resh, Yad, and, and so on. Shen, or, or whatever that, Shin, Shin, that's what they call the S letter. I'm sorry. The accounts are of a man of Judah, the accounts in 4Q550, are of a man of Judah who was a tailor. He made clothes for the king and who was favored by the king. And apparently the relationship is carried down to the king's son as well as the son of the man. The designation of 4Q proto-Esther for the scrolls designated 4Q550 is ridiculous. It's only wishful thinking by some Jew, because those scrolls and the fragments of the story they represent are not at all even remotely similar to the Esther story. Not one whit. Now the word Ahasuerus, which appears in Esther as a title for the Persian king, is not generally used in Ezra or Nehemiah as a title for the kings of Persia, who are usually called Artaxerxes instead. And Artaxerxes is actually used in Ezra and Nehemiah of two different kings. And Ahasuerus and Artaxerxes are different Hebrew words. Although Cyrus and Darius are also mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. However, Ahasuerus does appear twice outside of Esther. It appears in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, and in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, the word Darius, as well as the word Ahasuerus, are both titles, since the reference, if we read Daniel 9.1, the reference must have been to Cyrus. So Darius is being used in Daniel 9.1 as a title for Cyrus because it was a title. And Cyrus came first among the Persians to the kingdom of the Babylonians, which is the context of Daniel chapter 9. Since Ezra followed Daniel by nearly a hundred years and uses the term Ahasuerus to refer to a king at a time clearly following that of Cyrus, and in Daniel 9.1, Ahasuerus is used of Darius or Cyrus's father. We see that the word Ahasuerus, as it is used by Daniel and Ezra, describes two different men. So Ahasuerus, just like Artaxerxes and Darius, is just a title and not a name. The Greek historians came to know specific Persian kings by various titles which the Persians used. But it can be demonstrated in all of this Eastern literature that these words are just titles. And the Greeks would assign one particular title to a specific king. 
Now, while Ahasuerus, in its Persian form, is not a word for any form of the name Cambyses, if we examine Daniel and Ezra and the context of those books, the Ahasuerus of Daniel must be a reference to Cambyses I, who was the father of Cyrus the Great. And the Ahasuerus of Ezra 4.6 must be a reference to Cambyses II, who was the son of Cyrus the Great, and also the last of Cyrus's dynasty. He was followed by the king whom the Greeks know as Darius I, who was followed by Xerxes I. And then Xerxes I was followed by Artaxerxes I. We're going to briefly discuss each of these men. But before we begin, here we are going to quote from a few paragraphs of Bertrand Compare's critique of the Book of Esther. We will quote more from Compare a little more later on this evening and a lot more, Yahweh willing, in the second part of the series. We will do that so that we can see both his good perspectives on, his, on this book, and that way we won't have to repeat his work. Instead, we can build on it and to correct a few of his errors because he did make a few mistakes. So this is not only a critical review of Esther, but we hope to also improve on Compare's treatment of this subject while giving him credit where credit is due. I'm sorry, I can't talk and drink at the same time. To quote Bertrand Compare, the book of Esther, usually I have talked to you about the things that belong in your Bible, meaning the stuff they left out, right? But which didn't get there because the translators changed them or left them out. <coughs> now I am going to reverse that. I am going to talk to you about something they left in your Bible which doesn't belong there, and that is the book of Esther. Those of you who have read it have been puzzled by it. I know. It is a very curious thing to find in the Bible. In the entire book of Esther, it not only does not mention the name of God once, it doesn't even use the mere title of God once, meaning the word God itself. It never mentions prayer to God for help or thanksgiving to God for deliverance. It is a completely and brutally materialistic story of murder and robbery. And how did that get in your Bible? Well, let us look at this a bit. First of all, let us summarize what it says in the book of Esther. The scene is laid in the Persian Empire. After the overthrow of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire, Persia swallowed up media, and it became just the Persian Empire. That's sort of kind of a simplification, but that's okay. 
It opens with the statement that Ahasuerus gave a six-month-long feast, or more properly, a debauch for his nobles. Now, Ahasuerus is not the name of any person. Literally, it means the mighty one. And in English usage, it would correspond to his majesty. You could apply it to any king of any kingdom in all world history, and it would apply as well to one as to another. There's been considerable speculation as to which Persian king it was talking about, and we've already established that it was only a title. And there is nothing whatsoever in either the book of Esther or history to guide them. But judging by the approximate time it was supposed to have occurred, some have guessed that this Persian king might have been Xerxes, and we've already seen Lactantius, the early Christian writer, assert that it was Xerxes, and we've seen the supposed scholars of the new translation of Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they also take for granted that it was Xerxes. Now, not all scholars do, and we will get to that momentarily, but it seems, as Compare says, that many so-called scholars do either take for granted it was Xerxes or lean towards Xerxes. And Compare continues, I have even seen in some modern translations where they put the name Xerxes, which is downright forgery and falsification because in any of the original versions of the book of Esther, it doesn't name anybody. All the known history of Xerxes' reign proves that the events of the book of Esther did not take place during his reign. Now, we will leave off with Capray until we can resolve this question, and we'll go into much more detail than Capray did. Even though Capray was right, this could not have happened during the reign of Xerxes. We will prove that. The question that we must resolve is which Persian king could the Ahasuerus of the Book of Esther be? You may as well just throw the Purim. Throw the lots because when I get done, it, it can't be any of them. Now, the first king that at least some biblical commentators imagine may have been the Ahasuerus of Esther is, and this might surprise some people, but you could look it up online, it's there, is Cyaxares. Cyaxares was the king of the Medes who ruled from 625 to 685 B.C., I'm sorry, from 625 to 585 B.C. Now, let's get a quick rundown on the history of the period. Assyria 
was the world power. Assyrian kings ruled over the whole world known to um, the Assyrians, which stretched from some of the isles of the sea all the way to India. The Assyrian Empire was quite large, wasn't as big as the ones that followed. The Assyrians had rule over Egypt and Ethiopia, over Judea and, and Anatolia. They had, if they didn't rule directly, they had them under tribute. And Assyria fell in 612 BC. Nineveh was destroyed by that time by the Scythians, the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians, and probably some other tribes, smaller tribes, as a consortium, as an allied force, who finally threw off the yoke of the Assyrians. And after that, well, let's say that during that period, Herodotus tells us that the Scythians ruled all of Asia for, I think he said, 28 years. It may have been 25. I think it was 28. But after that came along the book of Nezar. Now, some of these periods, such as Herodotus's um, comments about the Scythians, have to overlap or, or possibly weren't as complete as Herodotus um, indicates. The Scythian rule, I mean, because the book of Nezar II ascends to the throne of Babylon, I think it was about 608 BC, 606 BC in there. And there's a little vacuum, a power vacuum in between. And the book of Nezar II begins to immediately, as soon as he ascends to the throne, consolidate Babylonian power and start conquering the provinces around Babylonia so that he becomes the new emperor. He um, went out and, and rebuilt the old Assyrian Empire under the Babylonian throne. So after um, the Book of Nezar II actually sat on the throne for a long time. And the Medes and the Persians accumulated power. And when Babylon declined in the time of Belshazzar, because it had become rich and weak in a very quick manner, Cyrus the Persian was able to overthrow Belshazzar and his father, Nabonidus and, and conquer them. And in 539 BC, the Persians became the owners of the empire. And they held it pretty much until the time of Alexander. That would be just over 200 years. It's in this 200-year period that the events of Esther had to happen. We will see that momentarily. But first we will explain why some people, some so-called scholars who are really clowns with degrees, believe that Cyaxerus could have been the king. But Cyaxerus could not have been the king of the book of Esther. And that's because while Cyaxerus, who ruled 
media from and the Persians from 625 to 585 BC because Cyaxarus, while he was the first king of the Medes and Persians to consolidate the Medes and the Persians, and for some time he ruled over much of Anatolia, Armenia, and Mesopotamia, he was later a tributary to the Babylonians after Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of him, and he never ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, which is what the book of Esther claims. But Cyaxarus is only put forth as a candidate because of the text of Esther chapter 2. And this is where some confusion comes in. In Esther 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, Now in Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name, and I'm going to call them Jews. I, I, I know that technically they're Judahites or Judeans, but I really believe that Esther, and we'll get to this next week, was a work of Edomite Jews. I really believe that. So I'm going to call them Jews when I, when, when I discuss this book. There was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So Mordecai is the great-grandson of Kish, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, of course, the Judahites of the Babylonian deportations were never settled in Susa, although in the days of the Assyrians, some of the Israelites had been settled there. But the book of Esther does not attempt to account for that. However, the prophet Daniel was made a high-ranking officer of the Persian Empire by Cyrus. Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. As he had been under the Babylonians, he was a high-ranking officer in the empire, as we see in Daniel chapter 5, verse 29. And Daniel was at the palace at Susa, or Shushan, as it is called. Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. But regardless of what we may think about Mordecai being in Susa, and Mordecai seems to be a lawyer, later on in the book of Esther. The text we have just read can be used to date the events which Esther claims to have happened. We don't believe they happened, but Esther dates those events. Now, some interpreters assert that the text of verse 6, where it says in Esther chapter 2, verse 6, who had been carried away. Some interpreters insert assert that that refers to Mordecai, because it is ambiguous, while other interpreters insist it refers to his supposed grandfather or great-grandfather, whose name was Kish. So let's read this again, because this is kind of important. Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem. So we don't know if it's really talking about Kish, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, or Mordecai, 
who had been carried away from Jerusalem. So there's a, 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 we can't narrow the book of Esther down to a more precise time, but we can certainly narrow it down to a range of time. If it refers to Mordecai, it was carried away with Jeconiah. Then the events of Esther could not have happened until well after the time when Cyrus conquered Babylon because the king in Esther is a Persian and he rules from India to Ethiopia. So that can only describe the time after 539 BC when Cyrus conquered the Babylonians. And Esther... I'm sorry, and Mordecai would have already been, if he was carried away at the age of one, he would have already been at least 50, and, and that's more like 49, I think, at least 50 years old when that happened in 539 B.C. But if that, that phrase, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, refers to Kish, who's the great-grandfather of Mordecai, then Mordecai would probably not have been born until after the time of Cyrus. If we account 30 years for each generation, which is more than fair, if Kish had no children until after he was taken to Babylon, and if he was taken to Babylon as a child, as perhaps of five years of age. We're trying to get the maximum possible range here, right? The maximum reasonable range. If Kish had been taken to Babylon at five years of age, in 585 BC, which is the latest possible date to be taken to Babylon, we would esteem that the latest reasonable dating for the birth of Mordecai would be around 500 BC, 85 years later. With this, we see that Mordecai would be an adult by the time of Artaxerxes I, who ruled Persia from 465 to 424. Mordecai would be 35 in 465. Now, if Mordecai was 20 years older than Esther, and born not long before 500 BC, then Esther would be the of the ideal age for a marriageable maiden when Artaxerxes came to the throne in 465 BC. Now, we're not trying to prove that the book of Esther could have happened during the reign of Artaxerxes I. When we get to the reign, to discuss the reign of Artaxerxes I, we'll see that it could not have happened in that time. But we're just trying to imagine the earliest and the latest times that the book of Esther could have happened, according to the book itself from the text of Esther, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. The earliest it could have happened, of course, is the reign of Cyrus, and that's impossible for reasons we will discuss later. The latest it could have happened reasonably is in the reign of Artaxerxes I from 465 
to 424 BC. Now, the next possible candidate, if it wasn't in the reign of Artaxerxes I, is Darius II, who ruled from 423 to 405 BC, and then Artaxerxes II, who ruled from 404 to 358 BC. However, Mordecai would have been far too old to be active during the reigns of either of these kings. We're talking about three generations. Mordecai and Esther were both, according to the text, in the same generation. Even if there was a 20-year difference between them, Esther would be an old hag by the time of Artaxerxes II or Darius II after 423 BC, when you consider that we only have three generations to play with starting in 585 BC, as the book of Esther itself informs us. So we're not stretching things at all. In the past, we have exposited on the real history during the time of the events alleged to have happened in the book of Esther. We never did it formally, but we've done it informally. And we have heard others, especially the um, Chicago pretender, we've heard others, the great, in, the great impersonator from Chicago, I should call him. We have heard others who think the book is canonical and who claim that those events it describes may have happened later than the time of Artaxerxes I. But if we are to accept Esther's genealogy from Mordecai, that's impossible because by 424 BC, which is the first king after Artaxerxes I, Mordecai would be a very old man. And his first cousin, Esther, even if she was several decades younger than Mordecai was, would still be an old hag by that time, and she would not be a maiden at all. So the events in Esther, by the testimony of Esther, cannot reasonably be imagined to have transpired during the reign of any king later than Artaxerxes I, which is still a hundred and begins 120 years after the, the deportations of the Judeans to Babylon. 120 years is over the maximum for three generations to grow to adulthood. Way over. We have ruled out Syaxarus the first king of the consolidated Persians and Medes, as a candidate for the king of Esther. And we can likewise rule out his successor, Astyagas, who ruled over the Medes and Persians from 585 to 550 BC for the same reasons, because he never ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. Astyagas was never a ruler over all the empire that later came to the Persians under Cyrus. Neither could Cyrus have been the king of Esther, since Cyrus 
who came to the throne in 550 did not come into the empire of the Babylonians until 539. Esther, in her book, dates the years of her king's reign. The third year of the king in Esther, Ahasuerus, is mentioned in Esther chapter 1, verse 3. The seventh year is at Esther chapter 2, verse 6. The twelfth year is at Esther chapter 3, verse 7. But the king of Esther already ruled 127 provinces in the very first verse of the book. So Cyrus is ruled out. And Cyrus only ruled over the entire empire for the last nine years of his life. Nine years, not twelve. And he had spent nearly all of that time at war, especially against the Scythians, which cost him his life in 530 B.C. Now, Daniel counts the first year of Cyrus as the year that he came to the throne of Babylon, not the throne of Persia, 539 B.C. If we hold Esther to that standard, then the 12th year of Ahasuerus, which is mentioned in Esther chapter 3, would not be possible for Cyrus either. So neither way can Cyrus be the king of Esther. Now Cyrus was the first Persian king to rule all of the countries from India to Ethiopia. Cyrus was also named in the prophecy of Isaiah as one who would do the work of Yahweh God. That's in Isaiah 44, 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Now Isaiah's writing 200 years before Cyrus becomes the king of Persia. But this is a prophet of God that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. So right from the first Persian king ruling over the entire empire, we see we have a man of God doing the will of God. We see in two chronicles that Cyrus did indeed initiate the reconstruction of Jerusalem, allowing anyone of Judah who so desired to return to their native land. This is described in Ezra and Nehemiah. And also in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, which is evidently 539 B.C., the first year that Cyrus had rule over the countries of the Babylonians, that he could effect such an order, that the word of Yahweh spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth, 
has Yahweh God of heaven given me, and he has charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? Yahweh his God is with him, and let him go up. Now we're going to see later this evening that the laws of the Persians did not change. It was unlawful for a king of Persia to try to change a law. Once he made a law, he couldn't change it. We're going to see that proven in Daniel chapter 6. If Cyrus, the first Persian king, issued a law allowing all Judeans to return to Judea, and in the book of Esther, we see this, that this law issued by Ahasuerus, giving them 11 months warning. Go read Esther. It's there. We'll talk about it more next week. They had 11 months. The order to kill all the Jews in Esther is issued 11 months before the date of its execution. Don't you think that since all the Jews had permission from Cyrus in a law that couldn't be changed to go back to Jerusalem, don't you think they would have done that? They had 11 months. They wouldn't have sat around on their asses saying, oh no, in 11 months, we're all going to die. What if Obama said, okay, we're going to kill all the niggers in 11 months? You think the niggers are going to sit around on their asses, or you think it's going to look, the whole country is going to look like Baltimore? But these Jews in Esther, they got 11 months, they're all going to die, and they just sit around, and they don't even say, oh, God, save us, because they don't even mention God. This story is just bullshit. Well, that's a digression. The book of Esther never mentions this Persian kindness to the people of Judah, never mentions that they can all just go back to Judea anytime they want, as Cyrus the king commanded, as we see in the book of Chronicles. And we'll also see it in Ezra and Nehemiah. The book of Esther never mentions anything of the second temple, which was rebuilt by Zerubbabel in 516 B.C. The book of Esther never says anything about the initiative to rebuild or return to Jerusalem, which we see in Nehemiah. And we see that as we have established at Christogenia. And as we will establish again here in 503 B.C., The only opinion on the book of Esther, which is consistent with history, is this, that it was written by a Jew of the second century B.C. or later, who himself only had a partial understanding of the history of the Persian period. So he was not a good liar. Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, 
when he died in 530 BC, was succeeded by his son Cambyses II. The man whom Ezra 4.6 refers to by the title Ahasuerus, this king, known for his great severity, he was actually pretty cruel, also spent much of his own reign away at war. His most noted campaign was against the Egyptians and Ethiopians, and he died soon thereafter. Having ruled for not even nine years, there is no way that he could have been the king of Esther. In his seventh year, he was going to Egypt and Ethiopia. There was, according to the Greeks, a pretender after the death of Cambyses, who had the throne for nine months, and he was actually ousted. He was succeeded by Darius I, who ruled Persia from 522 to 46 BC. Darius is the king of Persia in the time of Nehemiah. I know that the popular commentaries and chronologies try to put Nehemiah into um, to follow the time of Esther, something like 444 BC, 435 BC. They're all full of it. They're all liars. They are all clowns. Yeah, I'm going to say that. The events of this period concerning Persia and Jerusalem and Judea are discussed in depth in the paper of Christogenia entitled Notes Concerning Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy. It is established in that paper from the history of Persia and the testimony of both Ezra and Nehemiah that the Persian king of Nehemiah's time was Darius I. Nehemiah was his cupbearer, and, and, and the cupbearer to the king is a highly trusted position because he's the man that makes sure that the king does not get poisoned. It's not just a guy that carries around a cup, and when a king wants a drink, he fills up the cup. The cupbearer make sure the king doesn't get poisoned. When the king gets poisoned, the cupbearer failed. Nehemiah was his cupbearer, so he was close to the king. And at the opening of the book of Nehemiah, the prophet was also in Shushan at the palace, where Daniel had been up to perhaps 30 years earlier. Later, Nehemiah was appointed by Darius as governor of Judea during the time which Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. Nehemiah was recalled to Persia from Judea in 490 BC, which coincides with the Persian the Persian lost to the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon. The dating is established, that this dating I'm giving you is true, is established in Nehemiah, in part, because it's established in other ways as well, in Nehemiah chapter 2. Since when Nehemiah first goes to inspect Jerusalem, it lies in ruins so badly that he could not maneuver the animal that he rode upon around the debris. Nehemiah was acquainted with Darius 
from the beginning up to at least the 30th year. This is found in the book of Nehemiah, the 30th year of Darius's 36-year reign. And that's how we know that this king in Nehemiah is the emperor Darius I, because he's the only one from that time who ruled for 36 years. Perhaps Nehemiah, in all of his writing, may have mentioned something about the books of Esther if they had taken place up to that time. Of course, Nehemiah may have been one of the Jews whose life was threatened, but he never mentioned that because the events never happened. By the time of Ezra's commission to finish rebuilding the city, which began nearly 40 years later than Nehemiah's recall, the mess described in Nehemiah chapter 2 was cleaned up. The walls and the temple were rebuilt. The building ceased between Nehemiah's recall and Ezra's commission for one reason, because of the Persian involvement in the war against the Greeks, which involved all of the people and all of the resources of the empire from 490 BC, which was when the Persians lost at Marathon and Nehemiah was recalled to, to, to Susa up to 468 BC. 468 was the year of Persia's final defeat. Now, to wrap this up in a nutshell, Ezra commences the plan to rebuild and to, to finish the building project in the city 10 years later in the reign of Artaxerxes I in 458 B.C., maybe 457. From the time that Ezra gets to Jerusalem, that's when Daniel's 70 weeks starts ticking. Four hundred eighty-six and a half years later, the ministry of Christ begins, or four hundred eighty-three years later, the three and a half year ministry of Christ begins. In twenty-eight A.D., this is off the top of my head. This digression, so I could be off a year or two. It's posted at Christogenia under Notes Concerning Daniel's 70 Weeks Prophecy, where it's all in full detail. According to Ezra chapter 6, the temple was finished in the sixth year of this Darius, the king of Persia, and it says from verse 13, 
Van Katnay, governor on this side of the river, the river Shetar Bosnay, and their companions, according to that which Darius the king had sent, so they did speedily. And the elders of the Judeans built and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They were two of the three second temple prophets. The third one is Malachi. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel. Malachi must have followed Ezra by a couple of years. And according to the commandment of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and his house was finished on the third day, meaning the temple of the month Vedar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. That's at the time of Nehemiah, who was his cupbearer. There it is recorded that Darius made decrees ordaining the new temple and condemning anyone who would condemn it. It is hardly believable that Darius should agree to kill all of the Jews a year later, as the book of Esther asserts happened. For Darius to kill, as the book of Esther describes, all of the Jews in the empire in all the provinces. That would include Judea. The Persian kings were not allowed to change their laws. If Artaxerxes issues a command that these people in Jerusalem are to be protected, how could he issue a command which counters that, that the people in Jerusalem are to be killed? It is hardly believable that Darius should agree to kill all of the Jews a year later, in the seventh year, when the temple was finished in the sixth year and Darius issued this decree. Not possible. The book of Esther flies in the face of the history of the period, no matter which Persian king you try to put it in. Darius I is called Artaxerxes in Nehemiah, because both names are really only titles. The wife of Darius I was the famous Atosa, a daughter of Cyrus the Great who was well known to historians and who lived until 475 B.C. There is no room in the reign of Darius for any Vashti or any Esther. The Greek historian Herodotus describes how Darius became king. Because remember, two kings before Darius, Cambyses, died suddenly in the field on his way back from a failure to defeat the Ethiopians. And a usurper took over the throne, pretending to be the brother of Cambyses. The Greeks called him Pseudo-Smyrdus. So Darius, according to Herodotus, gets together with the noble families of Persia, 
attacks the palace and puts out the usurper after the usurper ruled for nine months. When that happened, these seven noble families of Persia made a league that they would intermarry with one another so that they could maintain control of the throne. There's no room in Vashti for any in, in, in the reign of Darius for Vashti or any Esther. The Greek historian Herodotus describes all this. There's no room because of the agreement these seven families made among themselves. There's no room for an Esther or a Vashti in the rules of any of Darius's immediate successors. Darius who could not have been the king of Esther, according to Ezra and Nehemiah, Darius was succeeded by his son, Xerxes I. Xerxes I, the guy that Lactantius and the translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls think was the king of Esther, was the son of Darius. And the wife of Xerxes is Amestris. And Amestris is also well known to historians. She's known from history. She's known from inscriptions. She was the mother of Artaxerxes I, the king who followed Xerxes. And she was the daughter of Ocanes. Ocanes was one of those noblemen who had helped Darius become king after they put out the usurper. So that was in keeping with the agreement which was described by Herodotus. In the book of Esther, it says in chapter 2, in verse 16, So Esther was taken under King Ahasuerus into his royal house in the tenth month which is the month to death, in the seventh year of his reign. Now Xerxes came to the Persian throne in 486 BC, and he continued his father's plans to invade Greece. This was effected, and Xerxes led his armies. According to Herodotus, it was an army of 1.8 million men which might be an exaggeration, but it was a really big army. Xerxes led his armies into Greece 10 years after the Battle of Marathon. That's how much planning went into the Persian invasion of Greece. They built 2,500 ships. The Tyrians built most of those ships. Xerxes led his armies into Greece in 480 BC, which is the year of the victory over the 300 Spartans at the Battle of Thermopylae. When um, the Spartans were dueling to the death in Thermopylae, they were doing that for a great reason, because the strategy was that if the Spartans could hold off the Persians at Thermopylae long enough, then the Athenians 
could move all of their wives and children and empty their cities and move them all to an island in the sea called Salamis. Salamis was off the coast of Athens, of Attica, in the Gulf of Corinth. Because of the bravery of the Spartans and Thermopylae, the Athenians had enough time to clear their cities because they knew that they could not face the Persians on land. They were outnumbered. They only had an army. Athens and Sparta combined of about 150,000. So they were way outnumbered. So they decided that they were going to face Xerxes at sea, where they thought they had much better odds. They had about 400 ships, so they were only outnumbered five or six to one, according to the numbers provided by Herodotus. So... The Athenians were able to empty their cities, but the Persians, when they broke through the pass at Thermopylae, had um, sacked and razed all of those cities. Athens was leveled to the ground. And this happened in the seventh year of the reign of Xerxes. When the book of Esther has this Ahasuerus in the seventh year of his reign, in Esther 2.16, partying it up at the palace in Susa. And these clowns that, that um, uh, are the translators of the Dead Sea Scrolls take it for granted that the king of Esther is Xerxes. It's extremely well known from history that in the seventh year of his reign, Xerxes was in Greece. He was standing on the shores of Attica from where he watched his 2,500-ship navy go up in smoke and sink to the bottom of the sea. That's what happened to Xerxes in the seventh year of his reign. When he saw that, when he saw that, great victory of the Greeks at sea, he turned around and headed home to Persia. He left a quarter of his army in Greece, hoping that they would defeat the Greeks, and they were soundly defeated. In 468 BC, at the battles of Plataea, and Michael A. So Xerxes could hardly be the king of Esther as Lactantius and those before him and modern scholars so wrongly imagine. Xerxes returned to Persia and he died in 465 B.C. 
where he was succeeded by his son, Artaxerxes I. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra record things which happened before his time, up to the building of the temple in Ezra chapter 6. Most of these things in the first six chapters of Ezra are also recorded by Nehemiah, who came before Ezra. During these first six chapters, the Persian kings Cyrus and Darius are mentioned. And then from Ezra chapter 7, we read where it opens with the words, Now, after these things, where Ezra begins to speak of his own time, and he records his own commission and his return to Jerusalem. This is corroborated in Ezra chapter 9, where we see that the house of God and the wall of the city had already been built. That's because it was Nehemiah who was commissioned to build that wall, and his book records that he did, where Ezra doesn't record any of the debris which prevented him from entering the city that we see in the book of Nehemiah. These modern scholars all follow these Jews in putting Nehemiah after the book of Ezra, and they all imagine that Ezra was about... 465 B.C., so Nehemiah was about 444 B.C. Bullshit. Read the books. Nehemiah sees all this rubble all over the place and the Babylonian destruction, can't even ride his ass into town. Ezra just walks in and, and the walls in the palace are already there because Nehemiah built them because Nehemiah precedes Ezra by 40 years. And all these so-called scholars are just stuck on stupid. So from Ezra chapter 7, he only refers to the Persian king Artaxerxes because that was the king of his own time. Now Ezra mentions receiving his tomb. in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. But he is writing this account, which we have some years later. And from Ezra, in other words, he didn't write it in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. He may have written it five years later, ten years later, whatever. From Ezra chapter 7 we read, And there went up some of the children of Israel, and of the priests, and the Levites, and the singers, and the porters, and the Nethinims, unto Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. Remember that Esther is parting it up with her king in the seventh year, in Esther chapter 2. And he came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of Yahweh, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now this is the copy of the letter that Artaxerxes gave unto Ezra the priest, the scribe, 
even ascribe the words of the commandments of Yahweh and of his statutes to Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, unto Ezra the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and at such time, I make a decree. Now remember, the, the laws of the, of the Persians can't change, right? And we're going to see the evidence of that later. I make a decree that all they, of the people of Israel, and of his priests and Levites in my realm, which are minded of their own free will to go up to Jerusalem, go with thee. For as much as thou art sent of the king and of his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of thy God, which is in thine hand, and to carry the silver and gold which, is, which the king and his counselors have offered freely unto the God of Israel, whose habitation is in Jerusalem, and all the silver and gold, that thou can find in all the provinces of Babylon, with the free will offering of the people and of the priests, offering willfully for the house of their God, which is in Jerusalem, that thou mayest buy speedily with this money, bullocks, rams, lambs, with their meat offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them upon the altar of the house of your God, which is in Jerusalem. And whatsoever shall seem good to thee and to thy brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, that to do after the will of your God, the vessels also that are given for thee for the service of the house of thy God, those deliver thou before the God of Jerusalem. And whatsoever more shall be needful for the house of thy God, which thou shalt have occasion to bestow, bestow it out of the king's treasure house. And I... Even I, Artaxerxes the king, do make a decree to all the treasurers that are beyond the river, that whatsoever, as for the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven shall require of you, it be done speedily. Unto a hundred thousand, I'm sorry, a hundred talents of silver, and to a hundred measures of wheat, and to a hundred baths of wine, and to a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatsoever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done to the house of the God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also we certify you, certify you, same language used in Esther. Also we certify you that touching any of the priests and Levites, singers, porters, nesodims, or ministers of the house of God, it shall be lawful to impose toll, tribute, or custom upon them. It shall not be lawful. And now, Ezra, after the wisdom of thy God that is in thine hand, set magistrates and judges... which may judge all the people that are beyond the river, all such as know the laws of thy God, and teach ye them that know not. And whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or unto banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Now let's read by comparison. Esther 2.16. So Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his house royal, 
in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, which is five months after Ezra arrives in Jerusalem, if Ahasuerus is Artaxerxes one, because he can't be Cyrus, he can't be Cambyses, he can't be Darius one, and he can't be Xerxes. So the next choice is Artaxerxes one. And from the timing in relation to the captivity, it being 120 years, this is the last reasonable choice. Then let's read from Esther chapter 3, verse 7. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, five years later, they cast per, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day, and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom all the provinces, and their laws are diverse from all people. Now this same king, if we are, are, if we are to imagine that this is Artaxerxes one, Artaxerxes one just promised death and banishment to anybody who will not do the law of Ezra's God. And five years later, is this king retarded? He don't remember this. And their laws are diverse from all people. Neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is, and, and the same king had no conflict with that in the book of Ezra. Neither it is not for the king's prophet to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. We're going to repeat a story from Herodotus this evening, explaining that um, Cambyses, before he made a law, before he decided to do something, check with the lawyers, check with the keepers of the law, the judges and the magistrates, to see if there was any conflicting law. If there's a conflicting law in Persian law, the king wasn't allowed to change the first law. All the Judeans would have had to do was say, hey, what about this law you made five years ago? You can't do this. And, and it would be resolved, if indeed that was the truth. But the book of Esther is written with absolutely no consideration for the history of the entire period. It just made stuff, made stuff up as it went along. That's all it did. It's garbage. It doesn't belong in history or the Bible. If Artaxerxes is the king of Esther... We are to believe that Esther was married to Artaxerxes during the same year that Ezra received his commission. And then five years after the commission, all the Jews in the empire were to be killed, which would include, Ezra described, and all the people of Jerusalem. Since Esther describes how the command to kill all the Jews was written in every language and sent to every province, 
Ezra, being the governor of Judea, ordained by Artaxerxes, would have been certain to get a copy of that commandment. Yet a few years later, when Ezra sat down to write out all of these accounts, which we see in his books, there is no mention made of any of the things in the book of Esther. Same thing, same thing we run into with Nehemiah under Darius. On the other hand, would Artaxerxes violate what he himself had written in his decree where it says, and whosoever will not do the law of thy God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily upon him, whether it be unto death or to banishment or to confiscation of goods or to imprisonment. Could Artaxerxes change his own law? Now, Comparet talks about this in his paper, and we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we do plan to present it later. But we shall discuss it at length now. According to Daniel, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel, whose word we know is true because it was fulfilled over and over again in history. According to Daniel, the Persian kings could not change their law from Daniel chapter 6. From verse 8, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing, that it not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. And we see, and we'll see next week, those same words pertaining to the laws of the king written in the book of Esther. The law of the Medes and Persians, once they're enacted, could not be changed. That was the custom of those people. And that was in response to Jews, certain Babylonians trying to set Daniel up because he was praying to a god other than the gods of the Persians. That they, in the book of Daniel, talked the king into making a law that only he could be worshipped, and anybody worshipping a foreign god would be put to death. And then when the king grieved that Daniel, being caught worshipping the god of Israel, Yahweh, would be thrown into the lion's den, the king could not change his own law. And we read from Daniel 6, from verse 12. Then they came near and spoke before the king, the king's concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed the decree that every man shall ask a petition, that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, except for thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not, meaning which can't be changed. So the king was grieved because Daniel had to go to the den of lions, and the king didn't want him to, but the king could not change his law. And then once more, in verse 15, Then these men assembled unto the king, and said unto the king, Now know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is, that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. And that's true. It's true, because Daniel says it's true three times. And we have another witness in the histories of Herodotus. 
in book three, in chapter chapter 31, which indirectly attests that the Persian kings had no power to change existing Persian laws. As in that chapter, Cambyses is depicted as inquiring of the judges of Persia whether there was a law forbidding him from marrying his own sister. That's what he wanted to do. But he had to make sure there was no law because he was not allowed, even as king, to change the law. And the book of Esther itself attests that Persian laws could not be altered. So the book of Esther itself is a third witness to that. So with the laws passed by Artaxerxes and Darius before him and Cyrus before him, reading those things, nobody could harm, nobody could make a law to harm the Judeans. Because all those kings decreed that the Judeans should not be harmed in the Persian Empire. The book of Esther, it's bullshit. So in a period where, according to the book of Esther itself, since it dates the great-grandfather of Mordecai to the Babylonian deportations, we may expect the events of Esther to have taken place by this time in Artaxerxes I. Yet, there is no Persian king during whose rule these events could possibly have happened. None. And if Artaxerxes II was the king of Esther, who ruled from 404 B.C. to 358 B.C., then by 392 B.C., the 12th year of Artaxerxes II, Mordecai, was an extremely old man, and Esther was an old hag rather than a maiden. But the possibility of the events of Esther having occurred in the reign of Artaxerxes II, who's the next legitimate king, legitimate candidate after Artaxerxes I, are just as dismal as for those who came before him. For instance, in Esther... The king gives a royal banquet for all the princes of the provinces. That royal banquet lasts for 180 days, six months. Artaxerxes II came to rule in 404 B.C. In 401 B.C., the third year of his reign, Artaxerxes II, during the third year of his reign, Artaxerxes II was fighting a war of succession with his own brother, whose name was Cyrus. Cyrus had been a prince of one of those provinces, the satrap of Lydia and Phrygia, and he had hired a large army of mercenaries to help him invade Mesopotamia and defeat his brother. If Cyrus was on his way to overthrow his brother, then all the governors of all the provinces, as the Book of Esther said, did not have a party with the king of Persia at that time. Because Artaxerxes II was fighting this battle against his brother at that time. 
who had come from western Anatolia with a large army of Greek mercenaries to invade Mesopotamia to overthrow him. The famous Greek historian Xenophon was a general in that mercenary army. His famous book, The Anabasis, was written as a result of this. And the subsequent history is well known to us, partly through the writings of Xenophon and partly through other sources. The events of the book of Esther are therefore not at all possible in this time either. The king's not going to be able to have a six-month party in the same year that his brother marches on him with an army to overthrow him. And his brother being one of the princes is not going to show up at a party while he's putting together an army to invade the capital. Yet the book of Esther says that all the princes showed up for a six-month party. Not possible. Not happening. It is true, however, that this Artaxerxes II had 115 sons from 350 wives. He was a whore of the king, tried to outdo Solomon. It would not surprise us if there were a Jewess or two in the mix. But his queen, his consort, was a woman named Statyra. And Statyra was the daughter of the Persian nobleman Hydarnes, in keeping with the law from the time of Darius I that the Persian kings marry from the noble families of Persia. Statyra is well known to history, and she was the mother of his son and successor, Artaxerxes III. Therefore, in the reign of Artaxerxes II, even though Esther would be a 150-year-old hag by then, she could not have been a queen, <laughs> the queen of Persia at this time either. Artaxerxes III came to the throne in 358 B.C. The empire was crumbling. He never ruled over Egypt, although he attacked and defeated it. He could never meet the description of the... Although he attacked it and he was defeated, he did not, at the beginning of his reign, rule over Egypt. He could never meet the description of the king of Esther, since he never ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. When he was defeated in Egypt, other provinces revolted from his rule. He was defeated in Egypt in the seventh year of his reign, so he couldn't have been at the palace in Shushan with Esther. While he, was later, while he later regained control of the empire, the circumstances of his rule would never fit the Esther account, not by any means. His son, Artaxerxes IV, only reigned for two years, and he was succeeded by Darius III, who only reigned six years. And then came Alexander the Great, Esther never happened in Persian history. And the deeper one looks into Esther, the higher the pile of bullshit the story is proven to be. I actually have um, a few thousand more words 
and had so many digressions, I didn't get through them. That's okay. We'll continue here at this point next week. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening.